This podcast is brought to you by Story King Books. Sign up now and get a free copy of my latest ebook, Launch Your Podcast Like a Pro. The link will be in the show notes. And now for today's episode. Welcome to the Story King Podcast, the show featuring inspirational conversations about the art and business of storytelling and living life. I'm your host, John Carlo, and today's guest is poet, fiction writer, and memoirist Lily Iona McKenzie. Lily Iona McKenzie has published reviews, interviews, short fiction, poetry, travel pieces, essays, and memoir in over 165 American and Canadian venues. She's also taught rhetoric at the University of San Francisco for over 30 years and was vice president of USF's part-time faculty union. Currently, she teaches creative writing at USF's Fromm Institute of Lifelong Learning. She also blogs about reading and writing at lilyionamckenzie.com. Her novels feature sexy, adventuresome, and inspirational women and men, some of them over 60, breaking boundaries. She has two works of poetry published, which are All This and a chapbook called No More Kings. Here is my conversation with Lily Iona McKenzie. Lily Iona McKenzie, welcome to the Story King podcast. Thank you. I'm excited to learn more about the Story King. <laughs> Are you the Story King? I don't know. I, you know what? I, I just uh, I looked for a lot of different names and everything was taken. Everything was taken. And it just I just sort of landed on that. Not trying to be pretentious or anything. <laughs> oh, no. Why not be a Story King? Yeah. <laughs> Well, as I begin all my interviews, Lily, I'd like to know a little bit more about your story. When you first reached out to me, you mentioned you became a mother at the age of 17. You were the first woman to work on the San Francisco docks. You've had three novels come out since you turned 75. Why don't you give us some background to all that about who you are and what you do? Well, now I have four novels. Uh, The fourth one came out in October. Now, uh, you know, I taught for over 30 years writing at University of San Francisco. And I taught freshman, sophomore, etc. University of San Francisco has a tremendous program for older ad- adults, adults called the Fromm Institute for Lifelong Learning. So now I teach creative writing uh, to older adults, and it's extremely satisfying. Moved to the States in 1963, So I've been here a long time, longer than I've lived in Canada. And I uh, came here because of the bright lights, (laughs) the big city. I was um, a single mother then. And so I had the challenge of trying to find work that would support myself and my son because I didn't receive childcare from his father. And uh, and so that was an interesting time. I, I... arrived in San Francisco, you know, right at the beginning of the all the happening really around the world in terms of uh, sort of busting out of the 50s mentality. It was an exciting time and uh, but a scary time too for, uh, you know, someone 23 I was then and uh, but I I was 
actually sponsored into the States by Bechtel Corporation because I'd worked for them in their, uh, in Canada. And, uh, and they were very sweet. And, you know, I was excited that they were going to sponsor me into the States. It was really my only chance of getting here. And, and I worked for them <clears throat> for a year, but, but I finally had to take a job, a part-time job in the evening at the Fred Astaire dance studio, <laughs> which was in, <laughs> In Oakland, I didn't teach dancing, but I was a receptionist, and it gave me quite, uh, you know, perspective on that world. Uh, but then, you know, eventually, I thought, well, I can't, I can't continue to do these two jobs, and so I decided, well, I'll try cocktail waitressing, since I had heard that you can make you know, decent money with that, and I thought, well, then I can just support us on that, and so I uh, ended up working at the Fairmont Hotel for five years, uh, five long years, cocktail waitressing in that environment was really hard. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you could not sit down with customers and chat. Um, you had to stand in your station, you know, alert on atten at attention. It was kind of military in that respect. And you had to stand there hold holding on to a very heavy tray that, you know, always contained ashtrays and tip bowls and things like that so it was uh it was the workout for sure and you weren't you had to wear high heels too oh wow uh, yeah so <laughs> all of the above and black net stockings <laughs> in addition so uh yeah so it wasn't it wasn't a happy time for me i didn't know then that i was a writer and uh, i discovered it a few years later when I went through a deep depression, and thank God for that deep depression because it returned me to, uh, you know, an essential part of myself. I uh, started getting some help, some therapeutic help, and it was so. It was during that time that I realized that oh, I'm a writer, <laughs> and and, uh, and so then eventually I entered into. Um, well, I discovered that I could take this general education exam in lieu of my high school diploma, which I didn't have because I'd been a high school dropout. And then that allowed me to begin my my odyssey. And, uh, you know, I uh, got into San Francisco State's creative writing program as an undergraduate. And my first focus was poetry. And I learned, though, that poets, it was hard for poets, not only was it hard for poets to publish, but it was also hard for poets to sell books if they ever published a book. So I, I then uh, also took some classes in short fiction and, um, you know, got my, my uh, degree. And I also then went back for a master's in both the humanities and another master's in English with a creative writing focus. <clears throat> Excuse me, little allergy croakiness. So, you know, so that was my beginning. I didn't take novel writing classes. I've never had a novel writing class, but I had learned enough about, you know, narrative, about writing fiction, that that, that wasn't a problem. It was just a matter of doing it and learning from my mistakes and, you know, plodding on. So that was my entry into writing novels. And let me ask you, before we get into your 
your writing. What was the job that you were doing on the San Francisco docks? What was that? <laughs> well, I just, uh, I needed to earn some extra money. And I had heard, well, my best friend's husband had worked at the docks all his life, and his father had worked there all his life. So he thought he was going to integrate the docks, San Francisco docks, and he was using me as a guinea pig. And so he, uh, you know, told me, just come down, told me where to go, uh, and that he'd, uh, he'd be in touch with the person who, you know, did the hiring each day. So each day, those who wanted to work on the docks would gather in this room and uh, give their names. And, you know, and some of them would be called and some wouldn't. And so, you know, I walked into this smoke-filled room and uh, found a corner uh, next to a table with some magazines. And surprisingly, there were as many female magazines, <laughs> like Vogue or Psych, I don't know, uh, things that you wouldn't expect in this kind of environment. Uh, anyway, and I didn't get called out that day, but I went back the next day and I did get called out. And that went, uh, that went reasonably well. I was called a clerk. And you don't do much. I mean, it's a really, it was a really easy job. I just would stand around and, and I guess, uh, take note of things <clears throat> that were coming, arriving off of the ships and noting them down. But the next time I went out, I went out with these two other uh, college students. Uh, they were uh, two black guys and, and we were both sent out to a dock that was some distance away from the local one. And so when we got there, we learned that we were going to be longshoremen that day. And our job was to uh, guide these other longshoremen off of the boat with their driving cars off the boat. And we were supposed to direct them into parking places. And again, you know, I was the only woman around. So while I was standing out there, you know, in front of one of these parking places, waiting to guide somebody in, <laughs> this bloke, you know, ambles up to me and says, listen, lady, if you don't want to get your legs broken, you better get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> and and I, I took him seriously. You know, I finished out my day there. I didn't get my legs broken, but it was clear that uh, this was not going to be my <laughs> my world. <laughs> Right. So that, that was my last day on the docks. I actually published that story recently. It was fun to write and fun to see in print. Very yeah. interesting. Now, you write both poetry and fiction. Do you consider yourself more of a poet or a writer of fiction at this point? Or do you not go by either title, really? Well, I, I'm a poet at heart in the sense that, you know, I see the world a, a certain way. And, and poetry, I think, really is the foundation of my fiction in the sense of the narrative that I write. I'm very uh, sensitive to imagery and uh, that kind of thing. So I don't, you know, I'm, I'm a poet who writes uh, fiction, too, and love them both. Yeah. Awesome. So... You got started writing later. You said it was a, a bout of deep depression that got you started writing. So was it out of 
a therapeutic need to write that you discovered that you were writing or? Well, I, uh, when I was 13, I, I started keeping a diary. And at that time, I invented a code, a special language for myself, so that if anyone picked up this diary, they wouldn't be able to understand what I was saying. <laughs> and I have no idea what I created. You know, you know, it's it's. But I all I know is I remember doing that. I remember being very conscious about not wanting anyone to read this. So so clearly at that age, I was needing an outlet. I was needing a way to connect with my inner, you know, world, my feelings, and so on. And I found it. So when I went uh, started in this deep depression, I just had the urge. I had the need then to begin writing about what I was feeling, what I was going through. And so ever since, I you know I just keep I write daily about my dreams that I have at night, about whatever's going on, what I'm thinking, feeling, etc. So it's just become a lifelong ritual for me. Okay, and. Out of curiosity, who are some of your favorite authors, or what are some of your some of your favorite books? Well, it's so hard because you know I I read so many different writers and for different reasons too, <clears throat> because I think you know most of them have something that I can learn from. Uh, but I have to say that Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Mm. Uh, is uh, at the center of my heart, <laughs> and uh, especially well, all of his books, but especially One Hundred Years of Solitude, uh, which I can—it's almost like a Bible for me. I can go back to that, and I just—I'm just taken uh, someplace uh, that I, you know, normally wouldn't be able to access. So he has been uh, really important to me. But there's also, you know, I just, again, I, I, uh, my own writing doesn't necessarily reflect uh, the kind of writers that really appeal to me. I, I don't know if you've heard of W.G. Uh, Sebald, but he, he is a kind of a hybrid writer that created his own genre in a way. And, uh, you know, it, it's, it has a lot of history in it, uh, kind of memoir writing, too. But it doesn't fit into any of those categories. And he became, you know, he came onto the scene, I think about, oh, maybe, maybe 15 years ago. I don't, not exactly sure of the dates, but he became, you know, very well known in a short period of time. And then he died suddenly, I think in his early 50s. So that was a tremendous loss to the world. But I've read all of his books. But again, I don't. I don't try to imitate his style at all. I just mm -hmm. am, I'm haunted by his uh, uh, by the world that he creates, and and I guess that's what I when I'm reading, uh, whether I'm reading as a reader or reading as a writer, I'm I'm captured by the worlds, or if I'm not captured by the worlds, then I'm probably not going to read on. But I'm you know I love entering into these different worlds that, you know, these wonderful writers are able to uh, produce for us as readers. Uh, so, you know, I, how could I not love, you know, my fellow countrywoman, Alice Munro, whose short stories are absolutely brilliant. And, and so we're Margaret Atwood's in, in a much, much different way. She's, I think, 
uh, as good a writer in her own way as Alice Monroe is, but very, very different styles and, and different themes too. Anna Enright, English, I'm sorry, Irish writer who's absolutely terrific. So, you know, I just, there are a lot of different writers that I love to read. And most recently, I'm sort of, I sort of amazed myself because I've discovered spy fiction. Mm. <laughs> and, and so I'm, I'm going to have to tout these three different spy fiction writers. Well, of course, Louise Penny, she's Canadian, but she's got a terrific following. And I've read all of her books now uh, and has just published one with Hillary Clinton, of all people. Um but but Daniel Silva, brilliant. I mean, these are these are literary writers who happen to be writing these spy novels, and they're just so fascinating. Uh, Peter May, a Scottish, my you know, fellow Scotsman, a Scottish writer, again, just brilliant writing. That's what I've been reading recently. Awesome. Yeah, that's I know it's it's hard to pick one, you know, Gabriel Garcia Marquez. He's a favorite of mine. He he wrote a short story called A Very Old Man with Enormous yeah. Wings. I love that one. I know. Yes. And of course, 100 Years of Solitude is awesome. Hey, everybody, I just wanted to take the time to let you know about my latest book. It's called Massimo's Mirror and Other Stories. It's my first collection of short stories. The book uses fantasy, science fiction, and fairy tales to create a world where a magical array of protagonists conquer their fears, battle forces of evil, and step up to meet their potential. Suitable for the secular and religious alike, these stories are full of symbolism and quirky characters, including aliens, robots, angels, demons, superheroes, gods, animals, giants, monsters, and dragons, and just the right length to hold the attention of children and adults alike. All 50 stories are crafted to entertain and make us see behind the veil of reality and perhaps teach something along the way. The ebook and paperback editions are available on Amazon. You can purchase an autographed copy on my website, storykingbooks.com. Also, if you sign up on Story King Books with your email, you'll get a free copy of my latest PDF resource, Launch Your Podcast Like a Pro. And now back to today's episode. Are you so, writing, Giancarlo? I am a writer, yeah. I, I write magical realism, mostly. You're in, you're in my world, then. We, we inhabit the same world. Oh, awesome. I didn't realize that that's what you were writing as well, yes. as far as your fiction. Oh, cool. Yeah, Very especially, cool. Uh, certainly, Fling, my first novel, uh, Curva Pellegrosa, uh, which uh, the main character in Curva Pellegrosa comes out of southern Mexico and uh, finds her way on horseback and uh, with her entourage of two parrots uh, and uh, a goat, <laughs> she finds her and dog. She finds her way up to Canada and shakes, just sort of raises hell up there. <laughs> right. <laughs> and yeah, and Free Fall and Divine Comedy. So those three novels, especially, uh, are, have lots of magical realism elements. The only one that doesn't is my last one, the one I just published. So I definitely want to get into that. Is that the uh, the dream one about aging? No, actually, that one hasn't been published yet. Dreaming okay. myself into old age, right? Uh, one woman's search for meaning. It's it's out there searching for a publisher at the moment. That's a memoir, right? Yeah, it's kind of a hybrid memoir because it has poetry in it too. It has some imagery uh, because I also like to play around with watercolors and acrylics and so on. 
So I've included some of that in there and, and some critical essays, which I love to write too. And so it's a mix of things. Gotcha. We'll see, see if I can, if it'll grab someone's attention. Now, since you're a poet at heart, I have some questions specific to poetry, if I can pick your brain about them. So first of all, is most modern poetry at this point free form? Is meter still important these days or no? Well, you know, there's different ways to think about meter. There's the meter that you learn, you know, in high school or college. You count out, uh, you know, how many meters are on in a line, and etc. But then there's just the natural way that, as we talk, our, you know, the the, the way we arrange our words uh, uh, has its own rhythm to it. You know, there are still lots of poets that work in uh, that more formal way of really consciously trying to follow uh, meter. And then there are people like myself who sort of trust in, you know, the rhythm uh, of our own uh, language uh, to carry uh, the music of, of a poem. So, the, in other words, there's always rhythm, but not, but there's formal meter. And then, like you said, I like the way you put it, like trusting yourself in the rhythm of, of what you um, write. I'm trying to think of uh, 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 the, the, the Black Mountain School. Uh, they really articulated, I thought, really well back in the, well, this would have been around the 60s, their ideas about meter and open form, I think they called it. Uh, so, yeah, for anyone who's interested in things like that, they're a wonderful place uh, to start. I've heard it said that poetry is the purest form of writing because every word has to count, no filler. Would you agree with that? Well, I mean, it's certainly compressed use of language. And when, when I'm editing a poem, I'm always looking for words that aren't carrying their weight. Uh, on the other hand, you know, there are poets, I mean, I mean our, our uh, you know, wondrous uh, national poet, Walt Whitman, I don't think he counted words. Uh, I mean, if you read his work, it's, it's very lush. Uh, and and you don't I don't get the feeling that he was you know too concerned about that. So I I, I just feel that these rules or these dictums uh, always have to be challenged because you'll find someone who will come along and just knock the hell out of them. Right. And, and uh, there you go. You know. So so much for that one. <laughs> right. When it comes to trying to assess and grasp a poem's meaning, is there any wrong way to do that? I've taken an online class and I just watched a group of students tackle a particular poem for over an hour of just what seemed like endless interpretations you know, of each line. And then I get into discussions with friends about the real meaning of The Road Not Taken by Robert Frost, and we can never agree on it. <laughs> you know, so. Well, neither, neither would Robert Frost be able to. <laughs> So, I mean, that's, uh, it becomes, I mean, once, once you publish something, it's sort of uh, out of your hands and it, then the reader then becomes part of the creation uh, of whatever it is, whether it's a novel or a poem 
so, you know, there's so many different ways of approaching a poem. And, and you always have to be asking yourself, how much am I projecting into this, of my own stuff? You know, what's really there in this line, uh, in this poem? Or what am I wanting to see there? And, and, and I think that, um, you know, I can remember teaching poetry to uh, college students and they just, you know, they were just so resistant. You know, why, you know, why should I read this? And it was, it was kind of exciting to walk through poems with them and to begin to unpack them and have them begin, oh, oh. So it's be because uh, I, I think most of us go around in life assuming that what we see is all there is. And, and that's reality. But in fact, there are multiple realities. And mm -hmm. if you love magical realism, you know, you know that. And I mean, that's what I think one of the wonderful things about magical realism is because it acknowledges that there's more than what meets the eye. Uh, and so, you know, that's what's happening with certainly with uh, any good literature, whether it's poetry or fiction, you're wanting to discover what the writer is has discovered in creating this particular uh, work, and what can I then take away from this? What can I learn? What, how is this going to open me? I mean, it's like when I go to an, um, a museum and to an art show. I mean, I'm just when I leave, I'm just it, it's like I've been turned upside down because I'm seeing the world differently again, and that's what I think we should hope to happen to us with real, you know, good works of literature. Yeah, I like the way you put it, that the reader is co-creating, you know, that that the writing itself just kind of takes on its own life after that. And whatever yeah. the writer meant, it almost becomes not irrelevant, but it becomes part, it, it gets joined with how the reader yeah. interprets things and their life uh -huh. experience and what they're putting in there. So interesting. Well, and you also have to understand that writers are not gods. And what the writer might have meant, might <laughs> he or she might be reading it uh, in in a totally different way than what another reader would. So, I, I mean, that's why I'm sort of interested in reading reviews of things that I've written to find out what I've what, I, what I've written, how another person is, you know, has right. what I've written because I I don't get it all. Yeah. Now, what's the difference in process between writing poetry and writing fiction? Oh, for you. Well, you don't have to commit yourself <laughs> for years to uh, to write one poem unless you're uh, uh, one of these people who who can't stop revising. <laughs> right. <laughs> no, I mean it's such a different, totally, totally different uh, process for me, at least. Uh, and uh, I mean, the poem is something that I, I can get like an immediate hit off of uh, because it will show me something that I didn't know before I wrote it. And that's the, fun, that's the fun of doing any writing is what I discover in the process of doing it, whether it's poetry or prose. So, yeah, uh, it's, it's totally different, totally different. It's totally different demands on, on, a, on a writer. Yeah, there's an immediacy to poetry that 
doesn't lend itself to writing fiction. <laughs> exactly. I mean, you if you're going to write fiction, and especially long fiction, you have to be able to settle in for a long slog. It's a real commitment. And it's not unlike getting married and going through all of the ups and downs that we <laughs> right. go through in our relationships with our partners. Uh, and it's, it's similar things happen when you're writing long prose. So, yeah. Right. So talk about now is your latest book, The Ripening, A Canadian Girl Grows Up. Is that your latest one? That is my latest. All right. So what, what's the basic premise of that? Well, I wrote it because uh, the main character is a young version of the main character in Free Fall, a Divine Comedy, which was the um, last book that I published. And the publisher, Pinnell Publishing, had asked me, they'd give me a contract for three books altogether. And so I thought, well, I'll, I'll see what I can learn about the main character in Freefall, whose name is Tilly Bloom. She calls herself Bloom, uh, sort of after uh, a famous Bloom in Ulysses. <laughs> but that character in Freefall, Tilly, is a kind of a wacky installation artist uh, who crashes the Venice Biennale uh, <laughs> just right before her 60th birthday and uh finally you know makes it in the in the uh, visual artist world so i wondered then what this young tilly would be like and uh and so i the uh the ripening then focuses on tilly from the age of about three until 18 and uh the narrative weaves back and forth between uh, Tilly is a teenager and Tilly is a young girl on this farm, which was a kind of a paradise for her. And so you see the older Tilly who's struggling with many things, uh, in, including a mother who's out to lunch and a stepfather who has a kind of Jekyll and Hyde uh, quality. And, you know, the world that's opening up to her uh, that includes, uh, you know, drugs and rock and roll. And so, you know, against that, the reader is constantly then seeing the young girl. And it's like, it's as if Tilly is, at least she has that foundation of what it was like growing up on the farm, those early years, uh, to help her as she stumbles and uh, careens, you know, through later years, and she's exposed to, you know, it really is a ripening, she's ripening sexually, and we don't get many books about, you know, young girls' sexual awakening. And uh, and hers was certainly abrupt. It wasn't the kind of thing you'd want uh, for a Canadian girl <laughs> growing up. Uh, the mother's my stepdaughter, who's a mother who read the book, and she was horrified you know, <laughs> <laughs> to think that her daughter might go through something like this. Uh, but this was, you know, was and is reality for a lot of a lot of uh, girls. So, you know, so it was a time uh, when it takes place. It's the late fifties, and it was a time when you know the world was flashing green and red lights at girls, and you know, many of them thought their only future was going to be you know, maybe a nurse, maybe a doc, not a doctor necessarily, unless you came from, uh, you know, an upper class family, and it was assumed that you would have higher education. But for most who were middle class or lower, uh, 
you know, their futures were limited. And, but yet there was still this, you know, opening in the collective consciousness of something coming in. And so she's growing up in the midst of that. I see. Now you already uh, told me a little bit about Dream Myself into Old Age, and you said a publisher is looking for that, right? You're trying to find a publisher at this point? I am. It's, I've, I think at the moment it's maybe with three publishing houses and okay. you know, I, I don't know if any of them are going to want to pick it up or not. It's such a specialized book that it has to be a, a host that is interested in more spiritual uh, material, which this certainly is. I have um, been through uh, Jungian uh, analysis and have you know read a lot of Jung's material over the years. So I'm really open to uh, the kind of world that he that his psychology accommodates, and right. so that that comes through in in this book too. Yeah, I love Jungian psychology, synchronicity, his idea of archetypes, and all that. Yes. To me, all that resonates deeply with me. Yes, and, and I thought it was such a brave way to approach psychology too that I don't feel other psychologists kind of dared I go know. into. I know. No, he really, he really was uh, uh, unusual, and it still is unusual in the doors that he opened for himself and for us. You know, for those who follow. Yeah, thank God. I got two questions left. If someone wanted to start writing, let's say writing anything, I was going to say write poetry, but where does one begin? You know, are there? I don't want to say tricks, but word well, association activities people should consider, or yeah. is it more about tapping into emotion? Where would you encourage people to begin? Well, you know, each one of us will be so different in how we approach, whether it's poetry or fiction. Um, I'm less interested in writing about things that actually happened in my life because it's boring. I mean, I've already I've already done that, so why would I want to go back there? Unless I mean, there are certain seeds though that I can you know use, but and then allow them to blossom in new ways, so that they're not just following the path that my life took. So you know, so I think uh, like for me, it was I couldn't write about what did they say? Write what you know. That's sorry, it's BS. <laughs> I mean, I think write what you don't know, uh, because that's when you're going to make discoveries. Uh, not that you shouldn't know things, and I think it's well meaning to write what you know. You know, it, of course, if you're trying to use description and so on, you have to be able to be believable. But you know, there are so many ways now with our wonderful internet world of you know, like when I was writing about Curva Pelagrosa coming from southern Mexico, I could look up all of that online. I could just Google all over the place and uh, <clears throat> and get the information I needed so that I could make it very believable. So, so where would you start? I mean, I am, as I said, I'm currently teaching memoir to older adults, and I give them writing prompts that take them into places in their past that have emotional resonance for them. <clears throat> so writing prompts, you know, can be useful in, in doing that. I mean, there's so many books out there 
Uh, I'm thinking of John Gardner. Uh, mm. he, he's written some couple of really great books for writers, and uh, and and you know he'll give you some some great ideas. For me, that never works so well. What works for me is uh, I'll get caught on an image. So, for example, I was reading in the newspaper a while back about a snake that turned up in someone's toilet in a New York City apartment. So, I couldn't, you know, how could I avoid writing about that? And so, it ended up being a short story called Priscilla the Python. (laughs) (laughs) And this python takes on an enormous role in this uh, couple's life. So, and the same thing with Curva Pellegrosa. That novel started with me reading again about a tornado that had hit a small town in Alberta, in Canada. And for some reason, that image stayed with me. I wrote about the image when it first occurred, and then it went in. I always keep notes on novels I'm working on. Uh, I'm not plotting, but I'm like having a conversation with myself as I'm as the narrative is moving along. And I kept coming back to I this really, you know, has some meaning for me. I'm going to have to write about this. And so uh, Curva Pellegrosa starts with this tornado, you know, uh, rushing into this um, small town and and it brings this purple outhouse into the center of town and inside it is Curva Pellegrosa. <laughs> oh, wow. So we meet her. So I, uh, you know, there there are so many different ways that that uh, beginning writers can uh, get into their material, but they have to be open to finding their own way and to be willing to stay with it. So it may not, I mean, for when I was first taking uh, uh, some short story classes at San Francisco State, I was so frustrated with a couple of the teachers I had because they were writing realism, and I was writing more symbolically, and they didn't uh, they didn't understand that difference, and uh, and so it took me a long time then to begin to sort out for myself. Oh, that's not the path that I want to be taking. And to then trust my own approach. Uh, And so, you know, again, I think that beginning writers have to really uh, give themselves permission uh, that it's going to take time. They may not immediately discover their, in quote, voice, their, you know, what's going to work for them uh, as a writer. Yes, and and to not, uh, not give up on themselves. And just out of curiosity, what's the average age of, your students, you said they're older adults at, at from. Oh, sure. Yeah. So between, say, between 60 and 95. Really? <laughs> no, no, they're incredible. Oh, I mean, it's just such an amazing privilege to be able to uh, work with them on these stories, you know, to help them turn them into uh, something that uh, other readers would really be engaged by. Yeah. Very cool. 95. Wow. No, they're wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. That's awesome. Last question. This is just a fun question. I ask every single guest this at the end. If you could choose any superpower, what would it be and why? Oh, fly. Fly. (laughs) You got it right away. (laughs) Fly. No, I always used to fly in dreams. 
And uh, I don't do that very much any longer, but it was such a wonderful sensation uh, and and all especially wonderful to be able to get over other people's heads and, <laughs> and, and you know see down on them from my height, whatever I don't know. That's yeah. mine. That's my answer too. So we're we're a, we're a kindred spirit there. Oh, I hope to see you flying <laughs> one day, Giancarlo. Giancarlo, is that Italian? That is Italian. Yeah, it's Giancarlo yeah. Gadini. Yes, the great name. Thank you so much. Well, I hope to see your work out there. It's on Amazon. I self-publish at the moment, and I, I have my own website, StoryKingBooks.com, where I, I sell directly over there. And then, of course, you can look up my name on Amazon. I have a few books out. Super. Good for you. Thank you. Yeah. And if people wanted to follow you online and purchase your books, reach out, where can they go about doing that? Well, I have a blog and, uh, and I, blog my, I blog every Monday, something about reading and writing. And so it's uh, pretty easy to find. It's just Lily, L-I-L-Y. Iona, I-O-N-A, McKenzie, M-A-C-K-E-N-Z-I-E dot com. Very Little simple. IonaMcKenzie.com. Yeah, come and visit me. I love visitors. And as far as buying your book, can they do that on the site? Amazon, or? No, they'll go to Amazon. Amazon and Barnes & Noble have all of my books. Awesome. I'll make yeah. sure all your links are in the show notes. Lily Iona McKenzie. Thank you so much for coming on the Story King podcast and sharing your story with us today. Thanks, Giancarlo. Lovely talking to you. So that was my conversation with Lily Iona McKenzie. All of her links will be in the show notes. Don't forget to check out storykingbooks.com. Also, you can follow us on Instagram. The username is storyking.podcast. I post weekly short stories, writing tips, and quotes from famous authors. You don't want to miss that. And please click like on our Facebook page. We're at facebook.com forward slash storykingpodcast. If you'd like to be a part of what we're doing with this show, please consider becoming a patron. You could choose a monthly membership tier at www.patreon.com forward slash thestoryking. All those links I just mentioned will be in the show notes. One more thing, if you're enjoying this podcast, please do me the favor of sharing the show with your friends and on social media, subscribing to it, and leaving a positive review on iTunes, Spotify, anywhere you get your podcasts. I would greatly appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Story King Podcast, a show about the art and business of storytelling and living life. Please join us next time. Until then. Until then.